committed to doing whatever it takes to expand the tent, to lengthen the cords, to stake those down in the Lord. And then verse 3 was a guarantee of four things. A first, expansion of grace worldwide. Second, covenant succession. That's in the phrase, your descendants will inherit. And then what is it they're inheriting? Not just heaven, but they're inheriting the nations. So that's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. There will be Christian nations all over this globe. And then the fourth thing that was promised there is that our descendants will inhabit the desolate cities. And that's just another way of saying that there is going to be a rebuilding of a new Christian civilization on the ruins of humanism. So those first three verses, I think, are just incredible promises that are designed to build the faith and stir up the action of God's people. But in any portion of the world where the church has refused to have that rejoicing faith and willing to make the kind of sacrifices and willing to plan for the replacing of humanism, when they've refused to do that, the church has not grown. So we're not talking about automatic growth. It's a guaranteed growth worldwide, but not necessarily in any given region. It is only for those regions of the world where they are willing to take seriously the three conditions in verses 1 through 3. And of course, Satan is very skilled at neutralizing us on those first three verses. Like Abraham with Hagar, and that was what Paul, when he quotes this passage, he was saying, that's just exactly what Abraham did with Hagar. He was looking at the natural in order to fulfill God's promises. And we have a tendency to do that. Instead of looking to the supernatural, drawing everything from the kingdom of heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're looking at the natural to try to fulfill God's purposes from politics all the way down to our family. Uh, Another way he neutralizes us is making us driven by comfort more than we are driven by God's glory. Another one is taking out the family. You know, he, in many different ways, neutralizes us on the family front. And so we looked at applications on that. But in verse 4, we're going to look at one more way in which Satan can make us miss the victory of verses 1 through 3. And that is to focus so much on our sins and our failures and our shame that we forget to look to God, our Maker, our Redeemer, our Husband. And uh, next week we're going to examine verse 5, which gives the solution. But today I just want to encourage you to put off fear, to put off shame. Listen to verse 4. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. And I want you to notice the words fear, ashamed, disgraced, shame, shame, and reproach. When we focus on those things, it kills our faith. I think most of us in this room have had things that we have done in our youth that we just shake our heads at. Uh, In the middle of verse 4, it says, for you will forget the shame of your youth. Now, that was something I had a hard time doing when I was in my 20s, when God first really grabbed hold of my heart, because I remembered things in my youth that just made me cringe 
And I had a hard time getting beyond that because of my shame. And that's exactly what Satan tries to do. He tries to anchor you in the past, not let you move forward because you're so stirred up over the things that you have done uh, in, in the past. Well, this verse shows God taking away shame, disgrace, and reproach. And this is an incredible blessing. He also says, do not fear. Fear of failure. Fear of what other people will think of you. Fear of the future. Fear of your past things that they're going to uh, anchor you down and make you a failure again. Uh, and, 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 and God, if Satan can grip your heart with shame or with fear, either one, you're going to miss out on the rejoicing faith, the active faith, the planning faith of the first three uh, verses. And so what God says is, don't let your heart be troubled about that anymore. Don't fear what I'm thinking about your past, and for sure, don't fear what other people think about your past. I think apart from salvation itself, this is one of the greatest blessings that God has given to his people, an escape from fear, condemnation, shame, disgrace, and reproach. And by the way, it doesn't just have to be other people. You can be all alone in your room, and Satan, the great accuser of the brethren, He'll bring up memories of what you have done in the past, and you'll cringe, and you will just feel so terrible about it that you cannot get away from that condemnation. Well, actually, this passage says you can. You can get away from that condemnation. And uh, I have a word for you concerning that uh, before you come to the Lord's table, and that word is not self-esteem. I want you to notice that Isaiah does not tell you that you should stop being ashamed of the past by being a real good boy today. That's not what he says at all. Remember that verse 1 says in the present tense, you still are barren. You're producing, but it's God's grace producing you. Paul said, I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. It is God's grace through you. And so you cannot escape the sense of shame by pumping up your self-esteem and lying to yourself that you really are swell, after all. Uh, you can't uh, do it by trying to convince yourself that God must value me. I must be really important for God to send His Son to save me. I must be really uh, something special. Uh, I must be uh, something that uh, God needs in order to advance uh, His kingdom. Uh, that's uh, a wrong conclusion. And the reason you cannot come to that conclusion is because you are convinced of unconditional election, that God did not choose you because of anything good in you. He chose you to magnify the glories of His grace. In fact, the descriptions that God gives of the unregenerate are absolutely gross. If you think you're bad, just wait till you read what God thinks about you in your natural state. Uh, it ain't pretty. Uh, he, he says that uh, an unregenerate person, he likens such sinners to an abscess oozing pus. <clears throat> Have you ever seen an ulcerated leg or arm? Ooh, I mean, it stinks. It smells like rotten flesh. I mean, it is very, very gross. Not a nice picture. A God likens sinners to a menstrual cloth, to a pig wallowing in the mire, to a dog who eats his own vomit, to a worm, to a tomb with rotting bodies. I mean, it's hardly the stuff you're going to build a doctrine of self-esteem upon, right? <laughs> the problem with self-esteem is that it's focused on self. Faith doesn't look at ourselves. 
faith looks at Jesus, right? It looks to Jesus. You might be able to get temporary relief from uh, believing a psychologist when he's spinning a garment of self-esteem for you and telling you that uh, you're so wonderful and you're so precious because that's why God died for you is because you're precious and uh, that you have all kinds of contributions that you can make and you're not as bad as you think you are. You're actually a whole lot worse than you think you are, believe me. Remember the fable of the emperor who had no clothes? They tried to convince him that these are clothes that anybody with any virtue is going to see that's just beautiful. Well, these psychologists are spinning garments that are invisible garments for the emperor, and all it takes is a child to point out the ugly nakedness, and you feel miserable all over again. That's what self-esteem is. It's that, that fabricated garment that really is invisible. And if the shame, and so the solution really uh, is in verse 5, it's to get your eyes off of yourself and to find your worth in the matchless splendor of the one who is your maker, your redeemer, your husband, your Lord. So don't neglect the word for at the beginning of verse 5. Without verse 5, you're still in your shame. Uh, That's a critical for. The only solution to our shame is to be united to Jesus and to focus on His worth. He makes you worthy. He's the one who turns the bride into a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. And I want to look at verse 5 next week. But for today, it's enough to realize that the true solution is not denial of your past or downplaying how bad your past has been. Uh, It's not getting hardened to your past or even refusing to look at your past. It's to look at the past as one who is secure in Jesus and on the basis of that security to rejoice that where grace and where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, right? Much more. So when Satan tries to discourage you about your past, uh, what you ought to do is say, is that all you can bring up? You don't know the half of it. I'm much worse than what you're accusing me of, and that's why I'm not going to look at myself. I'm going to look at Jesus because it's only in Jesus that I am secure, that I have forgiveness. It's only in Jesus that I can be loved with an everlasting love. It's only in Jesus that I do not have condemnation. And really, if the shame comes from other people who are pointing the finger at you, you can do exactly the same thing and just say, wow, they think they've got something on me. There's a whole lot more that they could point out in my life, and I'm still secure in the Lord God. I was a dirty, rotten sinner. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what God has forgiven. And what you should also say is, look, these people are not going to make me grovel, because that's what a lot of people want you to do. They want to put you in the doghouse for a while. And some people think that's what God wants me to do, grovel for a while and atone for my... No, you can't atone for anything. You don't grovel. You don't put up a facade, because the moment you put up a facade that you aren't as bad as people are saying you are, then there's anxiety, because you constantly have to protect this facade. You cannot have the rejoicing faith of verse 1, the act of faith of verse 2, or the faith in the future of verse 3, if you are not secure in Christ. And so come to the Lord's table, not in your own worthiness, not in your own self-esteem, but clothed in Christ's worthiness and sensing His esteem 
because of his worthiness, because of what he has done. If nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, then really it really doesn't matter what people think about us. We are totally secure in him, and having given us the Son, he will freely with him give us all things. So keep this verse in mind as we come to the Lord's table. I'm going to read it for you one more time, and then we will rejoice in this communion meal. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Father God, we do rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. We know that without him, we can do nothing. We are nothing. We are filthy rags. All of our righteousnesses would be filthy rags. And so we come thankful that you have made us secure in the Lord Jesus. And it's in that security that we want to pursue the sanctification and the advancement of your kingdom that the first three verses talk about. And I pray, Father, that each one here would rejoice that having been forgiven, uh, we can, with love, uh, with joy, with thankfulness of heart, serve you all the days of our lives. Uh, we pray that you would bless this, your people, bless this uh, sacrament, set aside these common elements to a holy use, and may we truly receive grace, joy, love, uh, security uh, from you as we partake. In Jesus' name, amen.